0: Good morning again. <clears throat> I'm excited to jump into uh, second week of this series, where we're going to with university. We're going to learn what it means to be with God, that His desires to be with us. Uh, like we just heard, I think often our mindset is that it's it's us chasing God. We we're pursuing God, which there's there's a sense in which that is true and right. But sometimes it feels like. We're never going to catch him. You know, he always seems uh, so far away when, it, when we acknowledge his holiness and, and who, who he is as creator and sustainer of the universe. But scripture tells the story also of God's pursuit of us, that God created us to be with him, and he is pursuing that relationship. With us. So what does that look like? What does it look like to say yes to that invitation? We talked about the declaration and invitation last week that the declaration is, I am with you. And the invitation is, will you be with me? Will you be with me? So we're gonna look at today, what does it look like to say yes to that invitation to be with God? You you get invitations for all kinds of things in the course of your life, you know, maybe get an invitation to go out to dinner with somebody or uh, come to a party, a birthday party, a graduation party. And and we have this process that we sort of go through when we're deciding if we're gonna say yes to an invitation or not. And oftentimes it's about the who, who's inviting me, who's gonna be there. And then sometimes it's about the what, what are we gonna do? And maybe if we're honest, there's a little bit of that, do I have something better to do? Is there something else I would just rather be doing uh, than going to this thing? So, um, and we just do that sort of automatically and make these decisions based on who and what. So if you, if you invited me to go with you to a ballet, if I say yes to that, you need to know it's because I like you, okay, right? If, if, if you invite me to uh, go out to a vegan restaurant with you, if I say yes, I, it's because I really like you, okay? Uh, but if you invite me to go to a baseball game, or a bookstore, or eat bacon, the three B's, books, baseball, bacon, it may not have anything to do with you, I will say yes, most likely, to any of those invitations. So, how, how do we decide what we're going to say to this invitation from God? Will you be with me? Now, some of you may feel like, well, I, I already made that decision. That was a moment in time back when I was a kid, or maybe it was last year, or I've, made, I've already said yes, and it was kind of a one and done thing to the invitation to be with God. But... The way Jesus talks about following him, it's more like a daily invitation, will you be with me? Imagine that God is waking you up every morning with this question, will you be with me? How do we decide if we're gonna say yes to the invitation? Well, we need to know who he is, right? Who, who is this person that's inviting us into this relationship? And we also need to know what, what are the terms of being with God? What what are the benefits and what are the costs? So today we're going to look at how this witness is a rhythm of blessing and sacrifice. But before we get into that, uh, which we are, we're going to get we're going to get way into it. So if you have a Bible, you need to be ready to go. Genesis chapter 22, fifteen, twenty-two. We're going to be we're going to be all in that area. So get get that queued up. But I want to back up and get a running start at this and review what we talked about last week. Last week we looked at creation, how God created everything that we see, plants and animals and earth and stars and galaxies and atoms and molecules and quarks. And he made all of it and sustains it. And then he made human beings and he invited humans, uh, a unique invitation to humans to be with him in this kind of Running creation, like caring for and ruling over and helping creation to thrive. God invited human beings into this partnership. And so in the beginning, we you have this witness. God and, and humans are together in this cooperative effort of uh, caring for creation. And this relationship is characterized by blessing and obedience. God is blessing humans, He's providing everything that they need, and they're just blessed by His presence with them in the garden, but then there's also this element of obedience. God said, hey, this, this is really only going to work if you trust me to know what I'm doing, to know how to decide for you what's good and bad, uh, to know, you, you know, what your purpose really is. This is only going to work if you trust me to be in charge, and so the humans are doing this, you know. They're in the garden. They're, 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 they're doing their work. They're, they're enjoying the presence of God, and they're obeying until you get to chapter three, and then we have what we call the fall, uh, the fall is just this uh, phrase that we use for uh, when Adam and Eve uh, chose to reject God's authority over their life, his, his authority to say what's good and bad and right and wrong and what their purpose really is. And they took that authority for themselves. And now the relationship has a different tone. In fact, there's no withness anymore. In fact, they are they are without God. They're exiled from the garden, the place where they got to experience the presence of God. They can't actually go there anymore. So they are without God and sin and death enter the world and there's a curse uh, that is now on humanity uh, because of, and on all of creation really, because of this this choice by the humans to say, we we wanna be in charge. We really would rather hold the reins, uh, wear the crowns. We wanna be the ones in charge. So what, what does life without God really look like? If, if you read the next few chapters of Genesis from you know, four and, and six and, and, and 11, you, you see some stories that start to unfold that give us a picture of what life without God looks like for humanity. So in, in chapter four, Adam and Eve, they have two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain murders his brother Abel. Like this, I mean, this happens really fast. You're like, how, how quickly can humanity deteriorate and devolve without you know, God in charge, it's pretty quick. So you've got, you've got mur- a brother murdering a brother. Uh, if that wasn't bad enough, by the time you get to chapter six, and we're several generations down from Adam and Eve now, God looks at humanity and he, he's, he uses a very troubling phrase. He says that the inclination of their hearts was only evil all the time. I mean, we think I mean, things are pretty bad in our world right now. I mean we can point to a lot of areas where there's evil and corruption and oppression and injustice. But could we really look at humanity and go, the inclination of the hearts of, of all humans is only evil all the time? It was really, really bad. So bad that God, God said, we, we've got we've to cleanse the world of this evil and he preserved Noah and his family. And then, and then you get to the, the Tower of Babel where human beings, and this is just a few generations later, you think, the flood, that should have done it, right? That should have done the trick. That, they should have gotten the message at that point, but they're still without God. And so they, the, the humans have gathered together and they've declared, we are going to make a great name for ourselves. And they begin to build, build this tower and, and God looks on this and he realizes that human beings who are driven by selfishness and their own glory can be so destructive. He confuses the languages, scatters the people to limit the destructive nature of their own selfishness. Life without God turns really bad really fast for humanity. But the good news is God is not content just to leave it at that and say, well, if you guys wanna destroy yourselves, Go ahead, I guess I can't stop you. God created us to be with him. And so he is gonna be the initiator. He is gonna take the steps to restore this relationship. So he begins to do that in the life of a man named Abram. We're gonna start in Genesis chapter 12 and see how God takes this step to begin to restore withness through Abram. And he's gonna call Abram and his family to be a representation of what life with God looks like to all people all over the planet for all time and we're gonna see this rhythm of blessing and sacrifice in the life of Abraham. So um, watch for that as we begin to read in Genesis chapter 12. You ready? No, let's do it anyway, all right. You're here, if you left now, it'd be awkward. So here we go, uh, Genesis 12:1 through three. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great. You see how that's the opposite of what the people were doing at the Tower of Babel. They were saying, we are gonna make a great name for ourselves, and now God is saying, no, I will make your name great. I'm not opposed to you having a great name, but it's gotta be for my purposes. Why? Why will he make Abram's name great? So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we see the blessing, God is gonna bless Abraham, and in fact, through Abraham and his descendants, God is gonna bless the entire planet. How's he gonna do that? It's a little foreshadowing there, all points to Jesus, I'll let you figure that out. But where's the sacrifice? So the sacrifice comes in the very first uh, verse here where God tells Abram he's got to move away from everything and everyone that he knows. Have you ever had to do that? Have you ever had to pack up all your stuff and move away from everything and everyone that you know and go, go to a far land? It's, it's hard, it's painful, it, it hurts, it costs something. So, Abram is called to this sacrifice and he's invited into this limited witness. There's gonna be witness, but it's gonna be limited because there's still sin. As long as there's sin, we can't fully be with God, but God is gonna make a way for some kind of limited witness. Let's move on to Genesis chapter 15. So, part of this promise that God makes is that uh, Abram's gonna have uh, descendants and God is gonna bless the world through them. At this point, he's 75 years old, his wife is 65, and they have no kids. So there are some questions surfacing pretty quickly. How's this gonna happen? And Abram is gonna bring those up in chapter 15. Uh, Verse one, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abram comes again, God and he says, all right, we, we still have a problem. I and mean, it's been a few years since you made this promise and I still don't have any kids. So what's happening here? And God says, I, I am going to be faithful. I'm gonna keep my promise. In fact, in fact, look at, look at the, the sky. If you could count all those stars, that's how, many, that's how many kids you're gonna have, your descendants you're gonna have. And uh, we know God fulfilled his promise because Father Abraham had many sons and many, many sons had Father Abraham, right? It's true, Just straight, straight out of the Bible. So um, one day we should do the, nah. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just count yourself fortunate. All right. Um, so God reaffirms this promise and this, this blessing is going to happen. It's, it's coming. And um, this blessing is gonna begin to change Abram. He, he's gonna really become a different and a distinct person. And this is really why God God has set him apart. It wasn't because there was something really special about him. It was God had chosen him to reflect what it was going to look like to be in a relationship with God to everyone around him. And that's exactly what we see happen. Abram, he's kind of a nomad, so he, he wanders around all over this land, and he'll run into people from time to time who who recognized something unique in him. You see this in Genesis 21. He runs into this guy named Abimelech. Abimelech's sort of just this, this kind of ruler of this local uh, tribe. And when Abimelech meets Abraham, he goes, oh, I, I know who you are. You're, you're one of Yahweh's guys. You're, you are, your God is with you, right? Why is it unique for, for Abimelech to say, your God is with you? Because, I mean, th- there were a lot of you know, deities that were being worshipped, false gods that were being worshipped all over the place. And people had religion. They, there was a lot of religion everywhere. But there was something unique about Abram's relationship and his God. There was a withness that Abimelech could see. And he's like, it's, you're not just making sacrifices to an idol. Your God is with you. There's something unique about that. And how did he know that? It was something about the way Abram lived his life. He also was very wealthy and things were going pretty well. And Abimelech's like, man, your God is with you and and I can see it. It's obvious that your God is with you. And shouldn't that be true? Shouldn't God's presence in our lives change us, make us distinct in some way that people can see us and recognize God with us? I don't know how you'd describe that. Almost like salt and light or something, I, maybe we'll, we'll work on that later. Uh, but that's what God is doing. He is, he is changing Abram by his presence and by this blessing. But it's a rhythm, remember, of blessing and sacrifice. So the sacrifice part, we're gonna, it's going to kick up a notch here. Um, we're we're going to be introduced to the, uh, the concept of altars, altars, the, the word altar, uh, the, the root for that is, is related to the word for slaughter. It means slaughter. So, an altar is a slaughter place. I know that's not very uh, you know, appealing, but it's, it's what I, I don't know what you mean to do. It's here. Uh, it's a slaughter place. And the first, the first altar that we come across is in Genesis 9 when Noah and his family uh, get off the ark finally and they're kissing the ground. And so, they build an altar and um, make a sacrifice to God. What they do is they, they kill some animals and they, they offer them on this altar, this slaughter place. And, and you start to get this picture that the altar is a place where something is happening between God and his people, that, that, that there's this, this presence of God there that's possible in, in a way at the altar that's not possible any other way. Why would that be? Because remember, that we're still in a limited witness. We're in a limited witness because of sin. And what the altar does In some way, the death of the animal that is offered on this slaughter place deals with sin in this moment at this place so that the human being can be with God. The altar, the sacrifice, sort of makes that possible in that moment. It deals with sin in that moment so the people can be with God. So you see altars start to pop up all over the place where people have these encounters with God and they build an altar and they make a sacrifice. It happens all over the Old Testament. And it's, it's sort of serving a lot of different functions and one of those is a way for the human beings to kind of go, all right, God, every, everything I have is yours and this is a way for me to show. Here, here's the best of what I have as a reminder to me that everything I have is yours, which is kind of a reversal of what happens in the garden in Genesis three, right? What, what's the sin? Adam and Eve take something that they're not supposed to take and at the altar, the human beings are now giving something to acknowledge that God actually is the owner of, of everything. So there's, there's a little bit of a reversal of Eden already happening here. And the presence of God shows up in a unique way. And human beings, through this rhythm of blessing and sacrifice, are enjoying this limited witness in their relationship to God under what we would call a covenant. A covenant. When, in Genesis 12 and 15, when God makes this promise, it, it's what we call a, a covenant, which is a mutual promise. It's a it's a two sided, two people saying, "Hey, if you you do this, I'll do that, and and I'll do this if you do that." And that's that's the covenant promise that Abram is living under, and, and really his whole family. But um, the call is still that God gets to be the one in charge. The invitation, "Will you be with me?" is still. I, you, you have to trust me with every part of your life. And so Abram is going to be tested in this in Genesis 22. We'll come to that in just a moment. But I want you to see what James has to say in the New Testament, thousands of years after Abram was dead, uh, the brother of Jesus, who's a leader in the church, is writing this letter and he, he brings up Abraham. Here's what he says in, Gen- in James 2:21. Was not Abram, Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Abraham gets to be a friend of God. That's that's a lot of witness. That, that's a lot of togetherness. How do you get to that point? Well, there has to be some sacrifice involved to deal with sin. There has to be Abraham at some point saying, you're in charge of every aspect of my life. How did that happen? Well, you, you heard the part in here about Isaac and an altar. Isaac is the son that was promised. And when God said, you're, you're gonna have a lot of descendants, and Abraham's like, I don't, have, I don't have any descendants. We're a long way from a lot of descendants. And finally, after 25 years of waiting, Abraham's wife has a son and they name him Isaac. And when Isaac is a boy, in Genesis 22, the Lord tests Abraham and he says, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and offer him to me as a sacrifice on a mountain that I'll show you. So Abraham and his son pack up the wood for the sacrifice, for the altar, and are hiking up the mountain. And the son, Isaac, he, he knows what a sacrifice is. He knows that it, it's a slaughter place. The altar is a slaughter place, that something has to die. So he's looking around going, I don't see any sheep or goats. So where is the sacrifice? Abraham's response is the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. So they get to the top of the mountain. Isaac is bound up and laid on the wood. And Abraham raises a knife over his son in a moment that can only be described as someone who is fully surrendered, who has said, God, you're in charge of every aspect of my life. If if there was anything that Abraham was gonna hold back from God, it would have been his son. If there was anything any area of his life where he was gonna say to God, no, you cannot be in charge of this. You can have everything else. You can have 99.9% of my decisions and my authority, but when it comes to my son, this is, he's mine. But in this moment, Abraham is saying, 100%, God, 100%, it's all yours. And in that moment, the angel intervenes and says, don't, don't kill your son. And Abraham looks over and there in the thicket, is a ram called by its horns. And they, they, they call this mountain the place where the Lord provides because God provided a sacrifice. So they could complete the sacrifice on the altar, the slaughter place, and keep his son. And so we have to ask this question. Can we be with God if Jesus is not Lord of every aspect of our lives? This seems to be the question that Abraham was being tested by. God has invited him, I I will be with you. I will be your God, I will bless you, I'll make your name great, I'm gonna bless all the nations of the earth through you. Will you be with me? And the, the cost of saying yes to that is God has to be the authority, the one in charge of every aspect of Abraham's life. And in this case, he made the right choice. He was not a perfect man. He sinned, he, he had moments when he held things back. He lied about his relationship with his wife so that uh, to preserve his own life, he slept with his wife's servant to try to speed up the promise of God. He was not a perfect man. But in this moment, he lays down everything because in order to be with God, he has to be Lord over every part of Abraham's life. So where does that leave us? I think if, if we're wrestling with this, can I be with God if Jesus is not Lord over every part of my life? The answer seems to be no, but it is so difficult to actually lay everything down. What if I can't do it? What, what if I can't? What if I'm able, unable to, to lay everything down every single day? If the invitation is daily, and, 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 and to say yes to this invitation is a daily laying down of everything. What if I miss a day? What if I fail? What if I fall? Here's where I wanna go back to Genesis 15 and see how I believe that God made a way. So remember, Genesis 15, Abraham comes to God and says, you know, I don't have any kids. Are are you gonna gonna do this for me or not? And God says, yes, I'm gonna do it. Abraham believes him. But God has also promised him a land and Abraham's not sure how how he's ever gonna know if, if he owns the land, right? They didn't have real estate agents and banks and like survey stakes? How does he know that this land is gonna be his? And he kind of says, God, can I get this in writing somehow? Can, can we make this a binding agreement that I'm gonna get this land? So here, here's how that, that goes down. In Genesis 15:7, seven, uh, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, and a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over and against the other, but he did not cut the bird in half. Okay, this is weird. Abraham is asked for like, give me some proof, give me some evidence, can I get this in writing? And God says, yeah, go get some animals and we're going to cut up like you would think maybe he would be like go get a tablet and you know a pen and we'll we'll make this official no it's go get some animals cut them up and and set the two halves of the animals opposite each other what's going to happen is the blood from those animals is going to drain towards the middle and there's going to be uh, this kind of river of blood between these animals what is going on here well there there was an ancient near eastern uh, cultural practice of making covenant. In fact, the, the, the word that we just call covenant, the way that they would say that, they would say cut covenant. Instead of just saying, hey, I'm going to make a promise to you, they would say, hey, let's cut covenant. And, and what they're talking about was this concept of, of killing animals and that somehow this blood of the animals becomes part of the agreement. Now, what does this really look like for Abraham and Moses in ancient Near Eastern cultures? You can read about that some, but it's also found in the book of Jeremiah. God makes a reference to this sort of cutting covenant in Jeremiah 34 through the prophet Jeremiah. He says this, and the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. So God is saying, hey, hey, it's, it's kinda like we cut covenant and you guys pass between the parts. Now what does that mean? They, they would walk through this river of blood in, in a sense to say, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, it's my life on the line. You can kill me like we killed these animals. It's my life, it's, it's my blood that I'm putting on the line to say I'm gonna keep my end of this deal. So God, Abraham says, can I get this in writing? God says, let's, let's, let's cut covenant. And so they cut the animals up. And now if, if, if Abram is gonna keep his end of the deal, which God has said, I will be your God, you will be my people, like we're, you be with me. You, uh, you gotta lay down everything to me. Then, uh, then he's supposed to pass through the pieces. And if God's gonna keep his end of the covenant, God will pass through the pieces. So what, what happens when they get all this set up? Abraham falls asleep. And you're like, well, this is bad timing, buddy. Uh, Judah has a second cup of coffee, like we got things to do. But he falls asleep and he does not pass through the pieces. So what happens on God's end? Verse 17 says this: When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces. A smoking firepot and a flaming torch. Pass between the pieces. You remember in Exodus when um, God delivers the people from slavery and they're wandering in the desert, and, and it says that God leads them through the desert. How, do, how does God show up to lead them through the desert? Well, during the day, it's a column of smoke, and at night, it's a pillar of fire. When God shows up on Mount Sinai, what does it look like? It's smoke and fire. When, when His presence finally inhabits the tabernacle that they built in the holy place, what does it look like? Smoke and fire. And so this smoking firepot and this flaming torch pass between the pieces, and there's a sense of which maybe what's happening here, guys, maybe what's happening is God is passing through the pieces saying, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, if I don't give you this land and give you all these descendants just like I promised, it's my life, you can kill me. Good luck with that, but I'm going to keep my end. I mean, God's not gonna break his end of the deal. But there are two representations of God that pass through. So maybe what's happening is God is passing through a second time, saying, Abraham, if you don't keep your end of the covenant, if you don't fully surrender every aspect of your life to me every single day, it's my life. It's my life on the line. It's my blood you can take. And then what do we see when Jesus comes and the cross becomes an altar, a slaughter place where the blood of the lamb is shed because the humans couldn't keep our end of the deal. We could not perfectly obey. So God says, it's my life. It's my life for yours. He sacrifices himself so that we can stay in relationship with him. That's how much God wants to be with you. He put his own life on the line for our mistakes, for our sins, for our choice to rebel, for our selfishness and our greed and our envy. He said, it's my life for yours. God made a way for us to say yes to the invitation in spite of the fact that we can't keep our end of the deal perfectly. He has declared, I am with you and he has offered, will you be with me? Not just a decision that you're gonna make one time in your past, but every morning he wakes you up with this question. Will you be with me? It's a rhythm of blessing and sacrifice. God's presence changes us. When he is with us, we become someone who's distinct, that people can look at us and know, man, I, God, God is with you in a way that's not, it's not like the way that, 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 that other people have kind of this religion or spirituality. No, your, your God is actually with you. That's what, that's what it's supposed to look like. I encourage you to ask that question. Like, as, as a follower of Jesus, what are some ways where the presence of God has made me distinct, has, has turned me into salt and light? The other question we have to ask, we have to circle back to this, is can I be with God if Jesus is not Lord? of every part of my life. It's a tough one that I think we have to wrestle with. And I, I think an important way to do that is, is to look at the stories of people who, who have made the sacrifices, who have laid everything down. Uh, there's a man named David who um, went to uh, Anderson University to study chemistry uh, about 60 years ago, and was very, very bright, top of his class, uh, graduated, got a great job at a big chemical company, um, was assigned a project that had been uh, a frustration to a lot of the veteran chemists there, but but through some experiments, he he made a discovery, and that led to the invention of a new kind of plastic. And as a, as a as a brand new rookie chemist, uh, research chemist, uh, he's he's on a fast track to success. But he could never shake this sense that God had called him into ministry, and and that maybe his pursuit of chemistry was a way of running from a call from God. So he wrestled with this and eventually he came to a place where he said, I have to obey, I have to say yes, I have to submit. So he quit his job, left his um, promising career uh, as, a, as a star research chemist and went back to Anderson University to get a degree in ministry. And then for the next 50 years, uh, he has served the Lord faithfully alongside of his wife as they have taught and preached and developed leaders um, for the kingdom of God in the United States and all over the world. And my guess is if you ask David, I mean, what what does this look like? This this life of, of, of giving yourself to God, he'd probably say something along the lines of, it's a rhythm of blessing and sacrifice. I don't know, you could ask him, he's sitting right there. His name is David New. Raise your hand, David. There are stories like that probably all over this building, all over this community, not just like David's, but moments where people have decided, if I'm gonna be with God, he's gotta be Lord over everything. What does that look like for you? As you wake up on Monday morning, God wakes you up with this declaration, I am with you and this invitation, will you be with me? What does it look like for you to say yes to that? Is he really Lord over every part of your life? What would change? Is there anything that you're holding back the way that we think, man, if there was anything Abraham was gonna hold back, it should have been Isaac, but he didn't. Is there anything you're holding back where you've kind of said, God, you, 99.9% of my decisions and, and my authority and what I'm doing with my life, you can have, but this one thing is mine. What is that? And is that keeping you from being with God in the way that you're created to be with God? I just kind of want to leave you with that question because here, here's, here's why it matters. We are called, we are under a, a new covenant with God which God God cut covenant with us through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we are under this new covenant and we are called just like Abraham to represent to the people around us what it looks like to be with God. So what does it say to the people around us if our choice to be with God doesn't cost us anything? If we live like everyone else and yet claim that we're gonna go to heaven someday, what, is, what kind of message does that send? Does that sound like the truth of the gospel? Does it look like the truth of the gospel in our lives? So this is not just about you. It is about you and, and your own relationship with God, but it's also about this opportunity we have to run into people in the world around us and for them to go, I, I know people like you. You're, you're a Jesus person. I, I, don't know, I don't know what that really means or looks like, but he is with you somehow. I can see it. That's what we're called to be and do. That's what it means to be salt and light in a world that desperately needs some hope. I just want you to, to think through that, wrestle with that as we, as we close. I'm gonna uh, invite you to stand. Go ahead and stand, we're gonna pray. And um, as, as we pray and as we, we kind of close out this song about, uh, about God's love for us, um, let's, let's look at both sides of this, the blessing. And, and count your blessings. Look at the ways in which God with you has made an impact in your life in, in such a positive way. And then I want you to, to ask some hard questions about the sacrifice. Is there anything that you're holding back? Can, can you really be with God if he's not Lord over every part? And let's just kind of bring those questions to God as we pray and sing together. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus and his sacrifice that he stood in our place that he covered our sin for all time. God, what an incredible gift. And we're grateful that we get to experience the blessing of being with you. I pray that you would move us to count our blessings, to understand all the ways that you have shown up in our lives that bring peace and joy and purpose. And I also pray that you would ask us to consider the sacrifice. have you asked of us? And have we really submitted? Have we given you everything? Maybe lead us through, through your spirit. Convict us of what, what is something that we're holding on to, that we're holding back from you. And, and just gently walk us through and how we can let that go. And through all of this, Father, would you help us to be a people that represent to everyone around us what life with you really looks like? We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.